everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, my guest today is Dr. Meenakshi Jain, and we're going to be talking about her book Vasudev, Krishna, and Mathura. Dr. Jain, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Uh, ma'am, I want to start with this as we were discussing o- uh, offline. Now, usually I have a different kind of a start, but because uh, I have read almost all of your work as far as books are concerned. So, and because our last discussion was about the Ram Janmabhoomi books that you had written. Now, one thing that I, it struck me and, you know, kind of took me back to when I was reading, but I wanted to know your detailed opinion on this. So, ma'am, when you were doing your research for the Ram Janmabhoomi and now you were doing your research for, you know, the Krishna Janmabhoomi case of Vasudeva Krishna and Mathura, this book, what were your experiences? What were the similarities and the differences that you found? A very interesting question that you have asked. My first reaction while studying this case at Matra was how well documented it is from 15 common era. That means for over 2000 years, we have epigraphic and other evidence. In the case of Ayodhya, there was no epigraphic evidence so early. The main inscription that was there found at Ayodhya was the inscription that fell off the walls of Babri Masjid in 1992. Before that, we have one or two inscriptions, but nothing of the nature that we have at Mathura. In Ayodhya, the Hindu case received a great boost by the excavations of the Archaeological Survey of India. The Archaeological Survey of India, it showed that that site had been continuously habitated, occupied from over 2000 years. And it said that that site was never used for residential purposes. It was always a sacred site. So the findings of the ASI showed that it was a sacred site. No palace was built for a king. No residential houses were built. It was always a series of sacred structures. Apart from that, uh, what we have is uh, some Mughal farmans of that period, which say this is a Jamimsthan of the, you know, and we have the accounts of two foreign travelers, William Finch and Joseph Tiffenthaler. After that, from 1858 onwards, you know, 1857, there was the Great Mutiny. And yes. in 1858, the British actually began to govern that area. So from 1858 till independence, we have all the records of the cases filed in the Fezabad District Court pertaining to this site. So the evidence at Ayodhya is also very convincing, but in my opinion, the Ayodhya, the Mathura evidence is really absolutely compelling. Because, you know, in Mathura, the inscriptional evidence begins in the common era. That means inscriptional evidence from almost 2000 years. That's a phenomenal difference between the two. And then, of course, we have court records, etc., which are comparable. Because even in Mathura, from the time that the British enter the scene, we have in the Mathura District Court, 
cases filed by both the parties and in which the case of the temple of Katra Keshavdev is one in every pronouncement of every British judge. Yeah, but ma'am, here's the thing. I also was wondering, so like in the, so obviously your book is divided into three, four parts, but the first part I want, I want to touch upon because it's very interesting that you touch upon the historicity of uh, Sri Krishna itself yes. now. Yes. And, and you have done it in, you know, different angles where you start with the Bhagavata religion and then into, you get into the literary evidence. Now, this is something that this is more of a philosophical question, but I wanted to know your opinion as a historian. Now, um, the key difference between, say, religions from the East and uh, the religions of from outside the East, let's say, you know, Islam or Christianity or Judaism, for that matter, is they are history-centric religions in comparison yes. to us, where there is a unique historical event and that event leads to X, Y, Z. Now, in the case of, you know, Eastern uh, philosophies or the philosophies of this land that are native to this land, obviously, we are not history-centric. So in, in a scenario like that, when a historian like you goes about collecting evidence and create this network for evidence, proving the historicity of Krishna, did somewhere in the back of your mind, how did you balance this uh, system out where maybe you do not look at it from a history centric lens is what I actually wanted to. I just wanted to pick your brain about that. Yeah, you see, uh, till the mid 20th century. Why I have discussed this angle is very important because till the mid 20th century, all the great historians of India who studied Vasudev Krishna, I include D.C. Sirkar, H.C. Ray Chaudhary, R.N. Dandekar, and leading Western scholars like Hopkins and Grierson, they, they wrote, they did not know that they are going to use their writings for a different purpose half a century or century down the line. But they who, they all studied the phenomena of Vasudev Krishna and they were unanimous that there was a historical person by the name of Vasudev Krishna. You see, in the last 50 years, Marxist historians have tried to say that Krishna was a mythical, mythological figure. So, to debunk this argument that Krishna was a mythological figure or a mythical figure, I tried to show that there was a consensus in the academic community in India and abroad saying that the evidence points to Krishna as a historical figure. And they cite the evidence. And what they say is that the first time we hear of Vasudev Krishna is in the Chandogya Upanishad which can be dated to around the 8th, 9th century BCE. And the Chandogya Upanishad talks, mentions him as Devki Putra Krishna. Now, Devki, it means it's very specific. Devki Putra Krishna, there is no other Devki Putra Krishna in our history, religion, mythology, whatever you want to say, or philosophy. So, and the thing is that Chandogya Upanishad not only mentions Devki Putra Krishna, it also mentions his teacher and what he learned from his teacher. So this is a specific, definite reference to a person called Vasudev Krishna. Now, it is interesting that later on, 
the teachings of Krishna that we come across, they are repeating what he learned from his teacher. So there is a continuity. Now you talked about this historical phenomena, philosophy, religion, etc. You see, uh, the most defining characteristic of what we can call Indian religion or philosophy or whatever you want to call it is that it embraces everything that it comes across in the subcontinent. Now, this is the difference between us and the Western religions. Now, we come across Vasudev Krishna in the Chandogya Upanishad, but we come across a person called Vishnu in the Rig Veda. And we also come across a person, Narayan. All right. And much later, we come across Krishna Gopal. Krishna Gopal is a deity associated with the cow herds and especially with the Abhira community. So over a passage of time, though Vasudev Krishna is mentioned in Chandogya Upanishad, over a period of centuries, we see this Krishna embraces all these other aspects like Vishnu, Narayan, and Krishna Gopal. And they all they get embraced and absorbed in the person that we know today as Krishna. And it is interesting that today, in the 20th century or 21st century, the most popular form of Krishna is the form in which he was worshipped by the Abhira cowherd community. See, we all know of Krishna Gopal. We celebrate Govardhan. So all this division of India, you know, this scholarly attempt to divide the religious expressions that, you know, he was a non-Brahmin god. He was a god of the lower castes. He was this, he was that. But the point is that the evolution of Krishna as a deity does not make any distinction between a Vedic god or a tribal god or a low caste god. These are things which don't figure in the evolution of what you can call religion or philosophy in India because the underlying feature is not to exclude but to embrace everything that you find and not only embrace, elevate. You see, uh, Krishna Gopal, the cowherd god of the uh, Abhira uh, tribal, I mean, cowherd community is now the most uh, popular form of Krishna. So uh, in, in India, we don't, you know, uh, differentiate or distinguish between upper caste god, lower caste god. The God, however he may have taken form, whether it was a human being or whatever, the point is over a period of centuries, the evolution of that God or that deity or that human being or that religion embraces everything that it can within its fold. Yeah. Yep. So, ma'am, another thing uh, uh, to me that stood out uh, you know, in the early part of the book, 
where on page 18 and 19, you talk about the evidence of the Arthashastra. Now, for some, maybe the Arthashastra evidence does not matter. For me, it matters the most. And here's my point of view, why? And I want you to talk about the Arthashastra because... Um, I mean, this is the Charvak podcast. So <laughs> for me, I, I look out for things that are maybe outside the purview of what may be classified as a spiritual book. And the Arthashastra for all means is not a spiritual book. It was a book basically about governance. Primarily, I think, yeah, I mean, if I remember correctly, when I read it, it was like 90% of it was basically how to deal with outside kingdoms. Now, even inside the Arthashastra, there are clear references about... Uh, this particular sect, this particular deity. So could you tell us a little bit more about that too? And I know for a lot of believers, the Arthashastra may not matter, but for the outsider, actually, the Arthashastra could be a clinching piece of evidence, in my opinion. Yes. Uh, but just before Arthashastra, if I can mention Megasthenes. Sure, sure. That's also, that's also an important literary source. Uh, uh, Megasthenes, it's also not a religious text. It was a Greek ambassador to the court of the, uh, you know, Mauryan dynasty. And most of his book is lost. So just a few bits and pieces have survived as quoted in other texts. So Megasthenes, uh, in fact, uh, he makes some very interesting points. He says Krishna worshippers, you know, he used to call, they used to call Krishna Hercules. So he says Krishna worshippers uh, control the cities of Mathura and Gokul. So that is a very interesting thing. And then there is a Roman historian of the first century common era. He says, I'm writing on the basis of evidence that was left by the, fall, the people who accompanied Alexander during the course of his invasion to India. And he says that those people record that when King Porus marched against Alexander, his army carried an image of Krishna. Because carrying that image of Krishna was the surest incentive for them to fight to defend the deity because they would not allow the, like the deity to be captured or desecrated in any way. So these are very uh, important. This thing. Now you mentioned about Arthashastra. Now, the Arthashastra is very valuable uh, in the context of my study. First of all, the Arthashastra has a chapter on spells, you know, spells. And it say, it mentions a spell which induces sleep. Yeah. So, this, so this, we all know the story that when Krishna was born, the entire prison went off to sleep. And the city went off to sleep so that the father could take him away. So the Arthashastra mentions a spell which induces sleep. That is very interesting. The Arthashastra also mentions temples. And it says what are the duties of temple priests. And it says they should make sure that the wealth of the temple is augmented. What is the wealth of temple? Cows, land, you know, some jewelry, whatever. How are you supposed to worship in a temple? And the most interesting part is the Astha Shastra contains details about the end of the Vrishni clan. 
you know, uh, the entire clan of Vasudev, they died. So, and this is an account which you find in Buddhist Jain literature also, the end of the Vrishni clan, you know, and they say how the whole clan died and Krishna was disheartened and he went to the forest and there he was accidentally shot by a hunter, Jara. So, Buddhist Jain and the Arthashastra are unanimous in telling us about how the Vrishni clan and Krishna met their end. So these are valuable, valuable literary accounts, you know. Yeah, and, and just, just to give people a perspective, like a lot of times in Western scholarship, when the historicity of Jesus is discussed, I think one of the main things that uh, people who have now kind of started questioning the historicity of Jesus. Uh, this doesn't crop up as much as with Prophet Muhammad, as much as it has started in scholarship about Jesus, is that when we talk about the historicity of a, of a, particular, uh, of a particular personality, a historical character, is we look at evidences from contemporary sources, people who yes. might have been their contemporary or who were maybe, if not at that time, maybe a little after that, which is mm. what is fascinating in this case and which is why we started the discussion and uh, and I just want to reiterate the point that when I was reading this book what stood out to me was that the contemporary parallel source evidences in the case of you know Sri Krishna are just simply overwhelming so anybody but ma'am then I have to ask you this question how in the living world can somebody question the historicity of Sri Krishna I just can't get over it when the evidence is so overwhelming, I mean, how can there be so much malice? See, as far as the believers are concerned, there is no doubt in their mind. The attempt to create a doubt is only in the academic community. And uh, I don't know how far they have been able to influence the mind of the general public. You know, and you were talking about near contemporary evidence. I want to give you the case of Panini. Panini was a grammarian and he mm. lived near Takshila and around the 6th century BCE. So that means if the Chandogya Upanishad is 7th, uh, 8th or 9th century, Panini was a few hundred years later, 6th, 7th century, again before common era. And Panini wrote rules of grammar. So there's a very interesting rule that he had that when you're mentioning two people, the shorter name will come first and the longer name second. But Panini says there is one exception to this. And that is when you are referring to Arjun and Vasudev, you will always mention Vasudev first and Arjun second. So my rule will not apply in this case. And the reason he gives is that Vasudev is the worshipful one. So Panini is also referring to Vasudev as the worshipful one. And then uh, a little later, Patanjali. Patanjali in his Mahabhashya, he, you know, Professor Bhandarkar, he has studied the Mahabhashya very carefully. And he has found in the Mahabhashya seven references by Patanjali to events related to Krishna's life. So obviously, 
Patanjali was not the first person to know about it. He was not specializing on Krishna. So obviously, this was, this was part of the general knowledge. He was using those stories to make some point. But it's not that people didn't know about those stories of Krishna by the, because Panini, we have said that Panini knows about Vasudev and Arjun. And Patanjali cites, you know, that he killed Kans. So he gives seven instances. So that also shows how widespread Krishna worship had become in the time of Panini and Patanjali. Because they are, uh, Panini is giving rules of grammar. Why is he giving this particular rule? Because Vasudev is well known at that time. Mm -hmm. And why does Patanjali give seven, have seven instances of Krishna's life in his Mahabhashya? And obviously they were things that were commonly known. So they're giving examples that are commonly known. It's not something that they're revealing, you know, that the people around them didn't know about it. Yeah. Now I want to go, go into this bit of your book, which is chapter three, where you talk about the fusion of cults. Like, for example, on 36, page number 36, you, you talk about Vishnu as a manifestation of the sun. Now, could you talk about this journey itself, which is this journey itself is so fascinating about how the meme of Krishna, because to me, Chapter 3 is about the meme itself, the meme of Shri Krishna and how the meme evolves in different forms or whether it's avatar, vad or, or everything else yes. associated with it. Could you talk a yeah. little bit about that? Yeah, uh, some of it I've already referred to that there was Vishnu in the Rig Ved, there is Narayan, there is, you know, these are sun gods. Now, uh, the thing is that the cult that is associated with Krishna is the Bhagavat religion, Bhagavat, Bhagavats. Uh, so how did this evolve? I've just done a brief, very sketchy survey that in the beginning, uh, the five important members of Krishna's family were worshipped. That is the Panchviras. They included his elder brother, Sankarshan. They included Pradyumna, Krishna's eldest son. And they included Anirudh and Sambha. Then, and the first person to be worshipped in this period was Sankarshan Vasudev's elder brother. Now, over a period of time, as Krishna's stature grew, we find the concept of Chaturvyuhas. Four. Four people are worshipped among the Vishnu, Vrishnis, not five. And in this phase, Krishna becomes number one and Sankarshan is, becomes number two. And then Sambha, Sambha is excluded from the list, Anirudh and Pradyumna. After that, we have further evolution and we have the theory of the avatars. Now, the number of avatars is not fixed in the beginning. We have eight, we have six, we have you know, various numbers. And at Mahabalipuram, we have referenced, there's inscription at Mahabalipuram, which refers to the avatars of Vishnu. And it's interesting that uh, at some point, Buddha is also included among the avatars of Vishnu. So as I yes. said, not to exclude, but to include, embrace, assimilate. So the uh, assimilation of Buddha 
as one of the avatars of vishnu also takes place gradually over a period of time so the avatars is the final manifestation but the number is not fixed at 10 in the beginning and who are the avatars also changes it's only much later that we come across the 10 avatars of vishnu among whom buddha is the last so you know we have uh, from uh, a place called chilas uh, in the gilgit baltistan border we have a drawing on a cave on a rock which shows sankarshan and vasudev so it had spread that far and uh, in afghanistan we have coins found of an indo greek ruler and those coins very early they also show the two sankarshan and vasudev so uh, what we call india today the spread of the name of vasudev krishna and sankarshan had spread to gilgit baltistan and afghanistan where coins have been found with the inscriptions with the pictures and i have uh, shown those coins in my book i have pictures of those coins where you can see you know uh, sankarshan is associated with the plow a hull you know so his coin also shows him and krishna with the chakra the wheel so uh, it is a very very fascinating uh, endeavor when you try to trace the early manifestations of krishna worship not only in inscriptions but other evidence like pictorial representations like numismatic representations so those are also uh, all pointing to the antiquity of this and the point that you made in the beginning that compared to the case at ayodhya mm-hmm. this is really quite different and very very enriching and uh, you know when we come to mathura we have to also keep in mind how many times this area was attacked so whatever evidence has survived is just by sheer luck and no evidence is complete it's all bits and pieces and fragments which archaeologists epigraphists over more than 100 years have you know put together this story which is really a remarkable story ayodhya yeah, was... yeah ayodhya was no. also attacked yeah uh, you know Uh, we know of uh, mahmud ghaznavi's nephew salar masood etc but uh, the evidence doesn't the evidence in mathura is absolutely fascinating rich body of evidence yeah i, I was just looking at the image of the you know heliodorus pillar that that yes. you even shared a, a black and white image and a colored image of the same in your book now yes. i was just looking at all the images and you know if if i was to mix the epigraphic and the literary evidence together because obviously you have spoken a, a lot already about the literary evidence but from the epigraphic evidence point of view even if we look at the archaeological you know landscape in the case yes. of uh, you know this particular uh, deity and this particular uh, research project again i mean 
am i wrong in assuming that it is just overwhelming in comparison to uh, shri yes. ram janmabhoomi absolutely now uh, you mentioned the heliodorus pillar inscription what is the importance of the heliodorus pillar inscription this is the first inscription that has survived in toto it is not damaged yes this is the one i'm talking about yeah and you know one minute can you know just one minute show that picture again the first picture Oops. the first picture uh, is the my virtual remnant. screen doesn't show it my virtual doesn't screen matter. doesn't show but uh, the first picture is the remnant of a temple there aha uh -huh. you know so yeah. the heliodorus pillar inscription is again of the 2nd century bce so how much wow. in how much evidence we have bc before common era it's chandogya upanishad it is panini it is patanjali it is megasthenes and this heliodorus inscription now this heliodorus inscription you know when the british archaeologists visited that site uh, the pillar was smeared with vermilion and the, it was so thick that they didn't realize there's an inscription under it so wow. uh, you know because that means for 2000 years that pillar was being worshiped can you imagine exactly that's what i i was going to say it's a so living breathing uh, emotion yes so what happened is that one a british archaeologist he scraped part of the pillar and then he saw the inscription and that inscription uh, you know dc sarkar eminent indian epigraphist and historian uh, he has published that and many others have published it now it's common property and the importance of that inscription as i told you it's fully intact there's no part damaged mm -hmm. and it so the inscription is in two parts the first part says he is heliodorus who is ambassador to the of the greek king to an indian court and it's dated around 2nd century bce so those are the details that it gives but the second part of the inscription is fascinating it quotes verbatim almost a verse from the strip uh, parva of the mahabharata so what does it mean that means heliodorus had already heard of the mahabharat before he came exactly and mahabharat itself says this is true because mahabharat says that vyas said the mahabharat should be first recited in takshashila and heliodorus came from takshashila and the mahabharat records that it was first recited in takshashila and then the people who heard it went to their respective regions and recited it there so this is the textual evidence the epigraphic evidence this is a total wonderful match you know and and, and, and also ma'am it also don't you think it also does a complete number and it completely disproves all the naysayers who always try to push the date of hindu civilization far yes. closer to the nearer dates than the older dates absolutely and from this area we have found another inscription and that inscription again is in fragments uh, whereas the heliodorus inscription is not in fragments this second inscription that we have found uses the word prasadottam which means best of temples so imagine another inscription for you know 
in that area which uses the word best of temples and this is before common era so there was a strong uh, evidence a, there, there is a strong body of evidence of the popularity of uh, krishna worship in this area and then just one more inscription i want to say that is the nana ghat inscription that is in the western ghats and bhula who was one of the very outstanding epigraphists he said it is the most important inscription uh, for this region because it shows that before common era the worship of krishna had spread to the maharashtra region mm -hmm. and from there it later on went to tamil nadu and the alwars and acharyas and then it went all over but imagine in the second century bc again the inscription is also important because the inscription says that this family that is carving out this inscription they are followers of vedic sacrifices and they have carried out 18 vedic sacrifices so if we say that uh, krishna was not a brahmanical religion to start with or it was not the devotees were not that's again a modern artificial divide because here are families which are clearly proudly saying that we follow conduct vedic yagyas we have conducted 18 and we dedicate this inscription to vasudev and sankarshan so what does it mean that these artificial divides which we have got so embedded in our thinking were actually a much later product and uh, there is another inscription that i want to say again outside mathura and that is the nagri inscription near chittor that also says that i have done vedic yagyas and i'm creating this narayan vatika for vasudev and sankarshan so the important point is that these divisions that it is not it's a vedic religion not vedic religion actually when we look at the evidence we find people who are performing vedic yagyas proudly declaring that we have performed so many yagyas and then saying that you know we are erecting this inscription or this temple or whatever it is for vasudev krishna and sankarshan so this there is a need to rethink our history because we only think of our history as one of strife one of oppression one of division but uh, early history does not substantiate that in any great way so now ma'am uh, let's get into the bit where you dedicate a chapter so my question is not about the evidence but i actually wanted to ask you so why what made you write chapter 6 specifically where you call it the ancestral land of the vrishnis why yes. in your view yes. this needed a dedicated chapter yes now the thing is that there is a school of historians who have tried to argue that mathura was a center of jainism buddhism you know that old thing of dividing so mm -hmm. i have said of course mathura was a center of buddhism jainism because uh this uh, it was a sacred site so there is no doubt that uh, buddhism and jainism were present and in fact if you study the evolution of image worship in mathura it happened simultaneously 
among Buddhist, Jains, and so-called Hindus. And actually, it's very possible that the same craftsmen who were making these images were making for all the three. So, you know, uh, leave that aside. So I came, I dedicated this chapter to Mathura to show how much evidence there is of Krishna's presence at Mathura. And uh, among the evidences is a piece of evidence which perhaps uh, you have not noted or missed or have not discussed it, is a evidence which talks about a family. And that family is professional actors. Professional actors means they sing and dance and they participate in what is called the miracle plays for Krishna. So in Mathura, plays centered around the life of Krishna, according to a scholar who has uh, studied this phenomena, they go back around 2000 years. So these plays, I mean, you know, this is a very important work that has been done by a, a scholar, which talks about plays being held on the life of Krishna. But that apart, the earliest evidence that we have at Mathura is, we know the date, though it's not specified, because it talks about the reign of the king at that time. It mentions a king in whose reign this inscription was engraved. And that king stopped reigning in 15 common era. So that means this is inscription is before 15 common era. That means it is more than 2,000 years old because we are now in the 21st century. Okay. Now, this inscription is a very, very important find in Mathura. And as you said, I'm reminded of this again and again, that you said the evidence at Mathura is overwhelming. So this inscription, uh, it is before 15 common era and it, it is by a person called Vasu. And part of that inscription has survived, not the entire thing, because in Mathra, no full inscription has survived. Because it, it was attacked again and again and again. This inscription says that I'm Vasu. I'm erecting this structure. And it mentions the parts of that structure, because the inscription is not full. It mentions a toran. Toran means gateway. And it mentions, you know, other things around a rectangle. And where is this? structure being created, it says I'm erecting this at the Mahasthan of Vasudev. Now, what is the meaning of Mahasthan? Mahasthan means great place. So somebody before 15 CE is saying I'm erecting this structure at the Mahasthan of Vasudev. So what does he mean by saying Mahasthan? He says, it means that it's a very important place. It's a great place associated with Vishnu, with the Vasudev. So what can that great place be? It can be either his birthplace or it can be a place connected with an important event in his life, like killing of Kans. We don't know. We don't know what it means, but we do know that the word Mahasthan is used in that inscription. And according to epigraphists, this word had great importance 
and its use at this inscription which is found at Katra Keshav Dev is very very significant. Now ma'am I have a slightly different question I don't know if you'll agree with this so when I was reading your chapter Bhagavatism in the early common era the thing that came to my mind was all the evidence that you share over here, whether it's, you know, the Tusam rock inscription or, mm. you know, the Balram and Krishna Chilas too, or, or whatever there are, because the maximum amount of uh, pictorial evidence or in terms of inscription in your book are shared in this particular chapter. Do you think these evidences will be twisted around and said, this is the mature Krishna, the old Krishna is not the real Krishna, and this is the Krishna, uh, ergo... This is the new one, and this is anything religion. is possible. It's very difficult to predict which turn scholarship will take on Krishna. Uh, but the but what is the saving grace is that all these historians and epigraphists, their views cannot be twisted because they've written very categorically. They've written very categorically: this is this person, this person, this person. The inscription says Mahasthan. This uh, pictorial representation says Vasudev Sankarshan. The coins say this. So a century of scholarship by the leading historians of India and epigraphists of India and Europe, I don't think it's going to be so easy to turn it aside. Uh, actually, uh, you know, it will be very interesting to see what they do with this evidence. So far, what I know is only that they have said there's no such thing as a historical figure. All right, ma'am. Now we get into uh, the bit in the book, which, uh, uh, as they say, the real pain starts from chapter eight <laughs> and goes all the way to the end. Now, obviously, I mean, Mahmood Ghazni or Ghaznavi, whatever we want to call him, he is a consistent man. He he had special love for our people. I mean, but I actually wanted to talk about something else where on page 124, you've written, you know, in the second paragraph, in the collapse of Hindu power, where you say all Buddhist Jain and Hindu shrines in and around Mathura were destroyed. Buddhism never recovered from the assault and for the next four centuries, any Jain or Hindu shrine constructed was demolished. Uh, you're obviously talking about the Hindu power in the Dwab, which was uh, affected by Ghori now. The memory of those temples and their transformation into mosques was preserved in oral traditions and in the many modest shrines built from structural sculptural fragments of earlier questions. Now, now this when I was reading this chapter, it actually did not take me to the book of Ramayana. Yeah. It took mm. me to the flight, flight of, of deity. Yes. Yeah. So what I, yeah. I find is that you know there is this constant image that has been portrayed. Now, I'm not defending, like, obviously, at a militarily strategic end, yes, our society was was having a lot of flaws. Otherwise, I'm hardly militarily. Let's face the facts. There were some military flaws. But this was a devoutly Hindu society and very resilient that would bounce back with the drop of a hat. And that's what I... I don't want to focus on the atrocities because it's very easy for me to focus on the atrocity and you know social media kind of a narrative. What stood out to me again, whether it was your last book, Flight of Deities, or whether it is Dick's book, is 
the tenacity of the community it bounces back every time and it gets back to the same place the that, can we talk about that uh, ma'am but you know uh, i have to clarify one thing there is a general misconception that the hindus did not fight see uh, when you look at the expansion of islam from arabia they went up to spain portugal they destroyed syria egypt persia you know it was one success after the other it was like cutting knife through butter it was that simple whereas in india from the time of the first arab attack on sindh it took up to the time that they established control in punjab it took 400 years you know this memory of the resistance is also something that we should now recall you know that uh, jaypal and his family four generations sacrificed themselves and they didn't allow mahmud ghaznavi to proceed beyond a point so 400 years from sindh to punjab is a phenomenal achievement and even after the delhi sultanate had been established in 1206 for the next 100 years the turkish sultans they could not add 1 inch more to their territory and they went on reoccupying the territory that they had won the resistance was phenomenal the other point i want to say is that there is a belief that caste system was the reason why the hindus fell we have to keep in mind that soldiers were always recruited from peasant families because farming was a seasonal occupation and in non farming seasons they enrolled as soldiers the peasantry in india was disarmed only by the british and so this is another point that i want to clarify with for your viewers and third point you know is that uh, islam was uh, presenting social equality actually the truth is that the turks when they came to india they were very conscious of their racial superiority and they were very reluctant to give that same status to indian muslims who converted so to hold the caste system responsible to say that fighting was only a kshatriya preserve it is wrong and to say that islam's message of equality that was not correct uh, you know the turks were very conscious of their racial superiority in the entire sultanate period in the first century there was only one indian muslim who managed to enter the ruling class and within 100 within one year he was executed so you know when we go on denigrating ourselves we should uh, better equip ourselves and acquaint ourselves with the facts on the ground now uh, uh, what was your question i forgotten no so i did want to talk about this bit uh, about consistently coming back and resurrecting yes, the temple yes, like yes. for example yes, you know yes, you yes. talk about it in keshav temple in the time of akbar where you mentioned i mean one of the rare instances where again and and this is what i admire about your scholarship ma'am that uh, you just say how things have happened and let the chips fall wherever they do and and then you clearly say though vandalized in the sultanate period the keshav temple seemed to have been adequately restored to serve as a place of worship by the time of akbar's reign which is 1556 to 
and uh, you know you also mentioned that uh, uh, who is this guy father antonio monserrat where you quote him as saying only one hindu temple is left out of the many for the muslims yeah. have completely destroyed all except the pyramids huge yes. crowds of pilgrims come from all over india to this temple which is situated on the high bank of jamna now hmm. and compare this say again, one thing yeah sure can i just uh, uh, you know what uh, my study of uh, this period has shown me that the hindus hindus by hindus i mean it in the general sense of you know the non muslims yeah, so uh, whenever a sacred site was vandalized or taken over they built something small as close as possible to that site and they kept the original name you know like uh, the kashi vishwanath temple which was destroyed so many times but it was kashi temple was built again and again by devotees in the shadow of the mosque that came up because they could not they could not um, you know demolish the mosque no mosque was demolished in that sense but within the shadow they built a small little shrine so the grand name for example uh, you know that bindu madhav temple it was in banaras aurangzeb built that masjid which still stands so you yeah. will still see a small little thing bearing the name bindu mahadev and continuing the traditions associated with that site so this is a phenomena that we see right from the first attacks till whenever you want to use as the cut off date so uh, father monserrat he as you said he went to mathura and he said there is no temple except the one that is standing now now what do you make of this new development ma'am obviously you you paid some you have given two three pages to obviously the prime culprit in everything bad happened that happens in india which is aurangzeb and very interestingly you know you give the archaeological remains uh, report by cunningham of 1871 now what do you make this is not more about your book but i wanted to know your views in general about this new attempt in a section of academia i don't want to tarnish the entire academia but this attempt to uh, present aurangzeb as some savior yeah uh, this is you know a this is a part of a concerted attempt to you know deny hindus what happened to them and uh, aurangzeb being the person who has a particularly bad image yeah. among the indians so now aurangzeb is being subjected to sustained whitewashing but the thing is that his acts of commission are so numerous that it's not possible to whitewash him you know uh, uh, many scholars are now saying that aurangzeb was forced to take a hard rigid line because he was uh, fighting for the mughal throne against his brother so he wanted the support of the muslim elite and because dara had the reputation of not being so rigid aurangzeb adopted this strategy to mobilize people in his favor but uh, they conveniently overlook 
Aurangzeb's acts of commission before, well before the battle for succession broke out. Mm -hmm. At the peak of Shah Jahan's reign, Shah Jahan sent Aurangzeb as viceroy of Gujarat. And what did Aurangzeb do there? There was a very famous uh, wealthy Jain jeweler, Shanti Das. He had constructed a beautiful temple in Ahmedabad city. That temple was visited by some Italian uh, foreigners and we have vivid accounts of the description of that temple. So when Aurangzeb went there as viceroy, he desecrated that temple and converted it into a masjid. Now Shanti Das, now that, this is when he was prince. There was no battle of succession. So, you know, what I was saying was that, and I'll tell you one more. So to cut the story short, Shanti Das wrote to Shah Jahan and said, what have we done to deserve this? Shah Jahan, who himself had demolished temples in Banaras, he realized that he cannot offend Shanti Das because the location of Gujarat as this, you know, port cities and all that. And he was a very influential jeweler. So he told, he recalled Aurangzeb had sent that you, he told the Muslim governor that you return the place to Shantidas. The Jain said that we cannot now use it because it has been desecrated. You know, the flesh of some animal has been cut over there. So that is one example. And the other example, which I must cite, you know, towards the end of his life, when Aurangzeb was in his late 80s, he sent an order to the Muslim officer in Somnath. And he said, please check and inform me whether Hindus have resumed working worship in that place. At the age of 80 plus, you know how many times Somnath was destroyed. He's saying that I want to check whether the Hindus have resumed worship over there. And if they have, destroy it in such a manner that they can never worship there again. So this is the great Aurangzeb. And he destroyed Kashi, not only Mathra. Look at the targets that he chose. Somnath, knowing full well its importance for the Hindus, asking his officer to check that worship has not resumed. And if it has, if it has stop it in a manner that it can never start again. Kashi and Mathra. Yeah. And so, so many other now, hmm. uh, I wanted to get into the the, the chronicles of the courts. Yeah, no, no, ma'am. I wanted to uh. ask you about the court records. Ma'am, how boring was it to read those court reports of that? Era? No. Actually, it was very interesting. You know why? Uh, uh, and these court documents, they begin from 1815. Yeah. 1815 is when the East India Company, you know, sells this land to Raja Patnimal of Banaras. I just want to give a brief before I come to this. Please do. 1707, Please. 1707, Aurangzeb died. In 1757, we have the attack of Ahmad Shah Abdali on Mathra, which is the most horrendous, horrifying uh, piece of, you know, in the history of Mathura. And that, uh, we have evidence of that by camp follower of Ahmad Shah Abdali, who has written a detailed account what Ahmad Shah did there. 
in any case 1770 the marathas they win the battle of govardhan and mathura and agra come under their control then they declared that area katra keshav dev as nazul or government land the british continue that policy in 1803 when they defeat the marathas in 1815 the east india company sells katra keshav dev to raja patnimal of banaras now when i say katra keshav dev i mean the entire 13.37 acres this is a very raja, raja patnimal is declared in british revenue and judicial records as the sole owner from 1815 up till 1944 patnimal's heirs successors are declared the owners of katra keshav dev there is no record of katra keshav dev having been partitioned or divided so in this entire period the eidga party they go on filing cases in the british courts saying that we don't recognize patnimal now these court cases you are saying they must have been boring they are absolutely fantastic reading because they showed the british judges they heard each case and they deliberated on it with such thoroughness and the evidence that they gave refuting the eidga party is fascinating you know so it shows how strong the case of the hindus was at katra keshav dev these doc, I, i don't have all the documents because i'm sure that mathura district court will have many more but these doc, what do the british say they tell the eidga party that you have not been able to produce one bit of evidence to, to substantiate your claim to that site you were never the owners and you are trying to forge documents you are trying to forge documents and they say that you are saying katra keshav dev was actually katra eidga you have not been able to produce one bit of evidence to substantiate that you are saying krishna chabutra was tehkhana but you have not been able to produce any evidence and they give the evidence in favor of patnimal the british judges cite that evidence so those documents are actually very very interesting and they show that the british courts the uh, british judges in all their judgments they recognize 13.37 acres having only one owner now ma'am ah uh, when i was going through this this work that you've done the one thing that stood out to me like for example uh you know you talk about the appeals you know there is one appeal then there is another appeal yeah. then there these is another all, appeal these are all these are all in the british courts yeah huh. and uh, after each, you know in every appeal it is categorically stated and rejected i mean i just yes. wanted to read one part which we are, you know which is 1929 appeal 1 on the fourth uh, prosecution which was filed in the court of the additional sub judge of mathura by abdullah khan and others against rai kishan das and something very interesting i mean i'm just going to read uh, one of the observations of the judge that you've shared where you say the judge observed before entering into the questions in issue i must describe briefly the site of katra keshav dev and also give a short history of its existence as mm-hmm. appears from mr grouse's memoirs of Mat- mathura 
and from yeah. an old document described as robbery kacheri nizamat exhibit one to which reference will be made subsequently and from the other documents that the whole area was once the site of a large and important temple dedicated to keshav deva after whose name the katra is known this is as categorical absolutely. as it gets absolutely yeah, absolutely absolutely and then now ma'am i have to get into the bit because we have to take audience questions also this yes. bit has confused the living daylights out of me <laughs> there is a particular trend which goes even after the british leave and then suddenly like a bollywood movie the plot thickens and there is a change somewhere in the 1950s ke baad and suddenly yeah. there is this new organization that comes which yes. uh, uh, almost like uh, I know you're not taking the name. I'm taking the name, like Audrey, who says PhD. Me, who mark idhar hai. Mere ko seriously lo. This, uh, you know, this organization crops up and says, "Hum Shri Krishna ke representative hai ji. Hum ko humse baat karo." Now, ma'am, yeah. could you tell us a little bit about yeah. this organization? Yeah, or ye yeah. Ichha dhari naak ke jaise inhone saare saare roop dharan kar liye. Okay, so just briefly, in 1950, in 1944. the heirs of raja patnimal sold the entire 13.3 acres to jugal kishor billa so there is clarity at the sale in 1944 in 1951 jugal kishor billa created a trust shri krishn janmabhoomi trust all right 1951 and the objective of the trust was to create a grand temple for krishna so till now the picture is very clear the picture of desecration building etc etc we are not gone to all the details because how much can be going to now as you say the twist in the tale comes in 1968 hmm. in 1968 suddenly we hear of an organization shri krishna janamsthan seva sangh yeah. now this seva sangh claims that it has the powers to decide the fate of katra keshavde two appeals are made in the mathra district court the mathra district court say you have no legal standing you please leave get out but in 1968 the seva sangh enters into an agreement with idga party and surrenders 3 acres of katra keshavde to the idga party now it really baffles anyone's imagination why because as you said every court had said 13.37 acres belongs to the mandir party no court had entertained any muslim uh, appeal on that 13.37 the entire 13.37 had been to, sold to jugal kishore birla then in 1968 why did the seva sang feel compelled to hand over 3 acres of land to idga party what was the compulsion you know i mean i came to know about this only because i heard a read of the case that vishnu jain had filed and that was when i first came to know that this was a hindu deed i mean it's no point talking about mahmud ghaznavi what about modern day people so 30 now the case that has been filed is that if 3 acres was land was given to idga party where is that 3 acres is the present idga built on that 3 acres 
If it is built on that three acres, it is obviously built after 1968, which means the People's Worship Act, which was passed in 1991, that the structure of a building before 1947 will not be changed, does not apply here. And the last bit of evidence that I wanted to mention is Alexander Cunningham. In his final report, Cunningham, you know, gives all the evidence for the temple, including inscriptions, etc. And he says this Eidga is now in a very dilapidated structure. Nobody uses it. And it can be demolished and excavations can take place there. But the present building is not demolished. I mean, it's not dilapidated. So when was this building constructed? And what was the pressure on the Seva Sangh to make a deal with the Eidga party, which had lost each and every case? It's a puzzle. I mean, I have no answer. Was it political pressure? Was it? I don't know. I think only when the Mathra court begins to hear, then truth will come yeah. out. Yeah. And what, what baffles me the most, and I think baffles and hurts me the most at the same time is that, as you rightfully said, that, you know, up to Angres Chalegai. You have freedom, you have the choice, yeah. you, you yeah. make your own decisions. And even yeah. after that, you go out of the way to screw yeah. cases up. Just yeah. says a lot about our society too. Yeah. And it remained a secret for so long. Yeah. <laughs> like It literally comes up like a kahani mein twist kind of a scenario. Real twist. <laughs> Real twist. Yeah. Real twist. So, ma'am, now I want to take a few of the audience questions because they've been patiently waiting. So, yes. ma'am, so somebody has asked, Namaskar, ma'am, doesn't the crux of the case land up in the realm of property ownership? If so, what's the evidence for both Mathura and Ayodhya? Nee, but how is this a property ownership thing? Because the property is in dis is not in dispute in Mathura. Because mm -hmm. all the, the sale of the entire thing to Jugal Kishore Birla is recorded. You can find the documents. So the sale deed is there. The creation of the trust in 1951 is there. So these trust deeds, the sale deeds and the trust deeds are there for anyone to see. So there is no dispute. The question is, why was a dispute created in 1968? What was the compulsion? Was it political compulsion? What was the thing? There is no ownership dispute. Because the uh, land has been registered in the name of Jugal Kishore Birla. And after that, it has been registered in the name of Sri Krishna Janbhumi Trust, which he created, which had Madan Mohan Malviya as one of the trustees. Right. So someone has asked, ma'am, is there any ge geological evidence uh, in your research when you were doing about the Dwarka flood, anything that you have come no, across I, in your research? I have uh, not looked at Dwarka. There is, uh, you know, excavation still going on. Uh, S.R. Rao conducted excavations at Dwarka, but that has not uh, been my area of study right now. All right. So another question that has come about is, again, you know, these people are waking. So can ma'am talk about the younger days of Sri Krishna or did she find anything in her research? The popular legend is that Sri Krishna got graduate from uh, Sandipani Ashram in Ujjain. Did, uh, what, what does there the is, evidence come up? See, uh, I don't want to get into that, but I, I have a photograph of uh, Sandipani Ashram where there is, you know, it's supposed to be the statue is supposed to be uh, before common era. That Sandip Ashram, that ashram still has that name. 
and there is a nandi over you know there is a cow that is still worshipped which is supposed to be thousands of years old all right acha this this one is an interesting question ma'am uh so i think somebody is trying to play the devil's advocate but i think it's very important so someone has asked ma'am how can we be sure that vasudev and heracles were krishna couldn't it be that they were different deities who later intermingled with shri krishna no uh, there is no debate on this it's not my opinion i've just uh, quoted the historians uh, you know the consensus among historians hc uh, ray choudhury dc sarkar so you'll find their writings and they write in brackets heracles and they given the reason why uh, they call him heracles there's no debate in the academic community whether heracles was krishna or not on this there is total consensus you can just look at uh, you know any author indian author dc sarkar or ray choudhury for example and there's unanimity on this on All this right. there is no debate okay so someone has asked ma'am are the references to shri krishna in mahabharata uh, uh later than the upanishads or or what are the dates if we compare the references to mahabharata and the upanishads that reference to see uh, the mahabharat there is it the mahabharat as it was composed is not the mahabharat that has come down to us because the mahabharat has you know uh, been expanded and uh, from the original size from jaya it became bharat mahabharat so the exact original uh, mahabharat it's very difficult to date because there is a lot of debate going on even now on the dating of the mahabharat war so you know there are uh, various uh, interpretations various dates uh, one date is 900 bc but the conventional date is 3100 bc marks the beginning of kaliyug the death of krishna marks the beginning of kaliyug and uh, we have the eyehole inscription uh, which says that so many thousand years it gives the exact figure have passed since the mahabharat war so that also leads to 3100 bc around that so this 3100 bc is really actually uh, not accepted in present day academic circles but kv ramesh kv ramesh was uh, the senior epigraphist in the archaeological survey of india he is the one who translated the vishnu hari inscription he has written on this date of the mahabharat war and he says we should he advises scholars he says that don't scoff at this tradition because this tradition is very consistent that 3100 bc marks the beginning of kaliyug so he says do not scoff at this tradition maybe some day some clinching evidence will come to substantiate it but the conventional date is 3100 bc as the date of the mahabharat war but as i said the original mahabharat there is no clarity on when it was written because the mahabharat went on getting expanded 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 all right so this is this question is that what could be the reasons for the increase in shri krishna's prominence over other panchavira especially his elder brother uh, elder brother sanskar samskarsan over samskaran over period of 
Sankarshan, yeah, they made ah, a, a spelling ah. mistake. So I, that's what ah. confused me. Is it mm-hmm. w- what were the reasons? What what could you think uh, in your study? There, were there any evidences in terms of literature or any archaeological no, uh, hints? According to what I can uh, think of, is that you know the other veeras, they were not. No teaching is really known to be in associated with them. Whereas Krishna, a set of teachings. is associated with him we know of his teacher we know what the teacher taught where we don't have that kind of evidence uh, for the other members of the family so initially as uh, your viewer says sankarshan was the elder one but sankarshan remained the elder one in the hierarchy he becomes number 2 i think because of the teachings of krishna and the fact that krishna also begins to assimilate other deities like vedic vishnu which does not happen in the case of other members of the panchviras all right so these two questions are about archaeology so one is that ma'am are idols of shri krishna buried under steps of the begum mosque after demolition of the mathura temple one minute let What me answer this yeah the evidence is an eyewitness account who lived in the time of aurangzeb his name is saki mustaid khan his work has been translated into english i have quoted that passage in my book and in which he says that the, he describes the destruction of the temple and he says the images were taken to begum sahiba's mosque to be buried under the steps this is an eyewitness account by saki mustaid khan jadunath sarkar among his histo- other historians have translated this work so it's easily available All right. Uh, one the thing I want part. to add, just sure, one thing sure. I want Please to add, yeah. and that is the advantage of living in the present age is that so much material, so many texts, original texts are now available on the internet free. So anyone interested can download those texts and view and read this information yourself. It's always good to look at these sources yourself. and dra- uh, come to your own conclusions you know i never uh, thrust a viewpoint on the viewers i just present the evidence but i'm going one step further and saying that much of this evidence is available these texts have all been translated the available free the archaeological survey of india their journal their journals epigraphica indica it's available on the net so these inscriptions you can read for the archaeologists what they have to say about this inscription all right so someone has asked ma'am do we find any archaeological evidence of any ruins of a town or city around mathura dating to 8th or 10th century bce 8th or 10th century bce i don't know uh, but uh, excavations at kankali tila in mathura uh, it was a jain uh, you know stronghold but buddhist the remains have also been found over there and they refer to some structures and part of the inscription uh, vincent smith has uh, done a very fantastic work on kankali tila and it goes up to about 5th 6th century 6th 5th century bce that book the jain stupa the title of the book is jain stupa and again it's available on the net and uh, you'll find it very rewarding 
to go through that book. All right, ma'am. One last question from the viewer is that, what is your next project now? My God. Well, uh, you know, I've got two projects, so I don't know which one will be completed first. So let's keep it a secret. It'll be very <laughs> interesting. It'll be very interesting, for sure. So, I enjoyed we... uh, reading this. Uh, I enjoyed working on this project because a lot of it was education for me also. This 1968 in my magic, wildest imagination, I did not know that this could be possible in independent India. So, yeah. So, one last question, ma'am, before we wrap today's discussion up was actually, so now the book is published. It is out. Everybody uh, who will be reading it will be reading it. How do you feel now? after you know things have settled down and so how do you feel about this project overall obviously the 1968 bit is seriously very disturbing even when i found it up like i did not know anything about it only when i read your book did i come to know about this thing but how do you feel overall about this project in general because you've been dealing with obviously ramayana ayodhya then flights of deities or whether the sati project so where would you rate this this work or uh, vasudeva krishna and mathura i think it's a major contribution uh what has given it topicality is you know sheer accident because my book actually stopped at the creation of a trust by Yugal Kishore Birla in 1951. So according to me, that was the end of the story. Then Vishnu Jain filed a case in the Mathura court on Krishan Janam Katra Keshav Dev. So I was curious and I said, what is this case? So I got the papers connected with that case. And that is the last chapter in my book's 10 pages. That is based on the plea that has been filed by Vishnu Jain. And when I read that, that is when I came to know about this 1968 thing. So it was a real, you know, anticlimax and a real thrilling end uh, to this book. And I, I'm not sure how long the courts will take to pronounce a verdict on this. But uh, I know two things. One is that there is a lot of material available in the Mathura district court of the British period, which will really show much more light. And the second thing is that now it is time that the Seva Sangh came forward. People from the Seva Sangh came forward and told us what are the compulsions in surrendering land of Katra Kishav Dev to the Idka party. Because, you know, every uh, bench in colonial times in independent India, has said that once the land is given to a deity, it cannot be taken away by anyone. It remains a property of the deity for eternity. Even if the deity, even if the devotee cannot build the temple again, that land of the deity remains with the deity forever. So these are two things that I'm waiting for. One, more re records being revealed on the Mathra district court of the British period and really 1968 was it political pressure because the Sangh has to come forward the Sangh hasn't disappeared 
So they will be representatives of that sun. Or they'll be official documents because you know Vishnu Jain, in his appeal to the court, has reproduced that agreement of 1968. So Seva Sun cannot just uh, you know keep quiet. It has it's answerable to the people, and people have become so much more alert because you know, I mean there's a growing awareness. So I don't think that they can just uh, keep quiet. I'm waiting for this to happen. Because I even I would like to know why it was done. Because you know, this is very important when you reconstruct our past, that these missing puzzles, because then they give clarity to the whole picture. How much we ourselves are responsible. In the past, our ancestors were reconstructing demolished temples on a smaller scale, but they went on reconstructing them, keeping their old name alive. You know, they never changed the name. The Vishesh, uh, Vishwanath temple was built three, four, five times. It never became some other name. They went on giving it that Vishwanath temple. Even if it was a small little hut, they still called it Vishwanath temple because that name meant so much to them. So how is it that we have uh, really turned the tables on ourselves? I, I totally agree with you, ma'am. Uh, for me, when I was reading this book, um, uh, as I was telling you offline, that, uh, you know, Ayodhya did get me angry. I, I'm not, I'm not going to deny when I read the Ayodhya evidence also, you know, I had read the court uh, documents to the, the judgment, you know, so I was, but when I read this book, you know, I, I, I came across three feelings. You know, first one was definitely that the kind of destruction and the evidence of destruction when it comes to this temple is just overwhelming. I don't know how anybody in their right mind, you know, I don't care which side of the socio-political religious aisle this person or that person might be. I mean, if you if you deny this, I don't know what is wrong with that person. Secondly, I mean, it's just a clear-cut case. Yes. This is far more far more of a clear-cut case than 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 uh, the case of the Ram Janmabhoomi. And and you know, ma'am, I, I have to say, uh, I, on behalf of each and every one who's going to be watching this or is or or who has been watching this podcast, I want to thank you for taking up these kinds of projects because there's really a shortage of this kind of work in this country where I don't know how else to say these things matter and to say India is a British construct, you know, it's very funny. Somebody actually joked about it, you know, uh, Hinduism is a modern religion, but Buddhism yeah. destroyed Hindu-based casteism. I was like, decide, yeah. karlo, ya modern religion yeah. hai, ya purana religion hai. Dono kaise Absolutely. Hai time pe. Absolutely. So it becomes so old... In the yeah, bad this, stuff, it becomes new in the good stuff. Absolutely. This is the tragedy of scholarship today. Uh, you know, to just run down our culture, yeah. our civilization, our heritage. But Kushal, I have to thank you so much for inviting me and giving me this opportunity to address so many people. And you have a very large following in podcast. I can never imagine that that many people will read my book as will watch your podcast. So, you know, the idea is to disseminate scholarship. And uh, this kind of opportunity is something that I really, I'm really grateful to you for inviting me and having this quite a long session, I think. 
ma'am ma it is my honor because like i told you offline you're you know you know you're my one of my icons so when you Thank told you. me on whatsapp that you know mujhe bahut achhi lagti hai teri podcast so it meant a lot to me because i literally have maine jaise aapko bola maine aapki sari books padhi hain maine to aapki wo wali foreign travelers ke jo 6 volume hai wo bhi maine pad li hai pure ke pure baith ke so i actually literally read all your work every time a new book pops out so once again on behalf of each and every viewer listener of this podcast thanks a lot ma'am and uh, guys buy the book uh, so if you have not bought it shame on you not only buy this book buy every book of minakshi ma'am uh, by the way if you are a kindle reader i know this for a fact especially when it came to the foreign travel came to the foreign traveler volumes yes, it it's on kindle, kindle. yeah it's on yes. kindle and it there was a offer on kindle when i had bought it so i don't know if that offer is there right now but kindle keeps coming up with these offers all the yes. time so look out for them i would recommend you to buy each and every book so when you go to this podcast whether it's on youtube or you're going to be listening to this later on on spotify or wherever you listen to it there will be a link to buy all the books of minakshi ma'am so not only should you buy vasudev krishna and mathura should buy the sati book you should buy the ramayana ayodhya book you should buy the foreign travelers what they said about us volumes these books are very important not only are they things that you should read these are citations these are things that if you write a blog you would need for citations these are the kinds of things that you need so once again guys i'm going to wrap today's discussion up buy the damn books it is very thank you important. sir and and if possible please support the charvak podcast like the channel subscribe to the channel like the video leave a comment support the podcast either by becoming a member on youtube patreon you know the drill i'll see you guys next time until then take care goodbye